minus 7. <laughs> Better is a poor man who walks in with integrity than he, than he is perverse in speech and is a fool. Also, it is not good for a person to be without knowledge, and he who hurries his footsteps errs. The foolishness of man ruins his way, and the heart and his heart rages against the Lord. Wealth adds many friends, but a poor man is separated from his friend. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will not escape. Many will see the favor of a generous man, and every man is a friend to him who gives gifts. All the brothers of a poor man hate him. How much more do his friends abandon him? He who pursues them with words, but they are gone. Look at 19.1. Poverty is better than dishonesty. <clears throat> you know, better to be poor and have integrity. Because poverty is not a disgrace, but dishonesty is. So maintain your character, whatever it costs you. Not, isn't that exactly right? Don't look so much out for success in this life. Look to have good, honest character. Verse 2. It's not good for a person to be without knowledge, and he who hurries his footsteps errs. To have zeal without knowledge is a disaster. Because you jump into something, but you don't know what you're doing, and you're going to mess it all up. You know, if you hurry, if you're hasty, and you don't think before you act, how is it going to work out? Not very good. You know, someone has said it's always uh, better to uh, measure three times and cut once than to measure once and cut three times. You know, plan things out, act deliberately. You know, a lot of times in spiritual areas, people just want to jump into things before they study them and learn what's right and know the right thing to do. He's saying here, act with knowledge. Don't be too hasty. Don't just have enthusiasm, but learn and, and deliberately make the right choices, do the right thing. It's a good proverb in a lot of areas. Thoughts and comments on these first two? Lots of these would be ones you could meditate on a lot. You know, stick one of these in your pocket every day and, uh, you know, think about it. I think if we took any one of these and really worked on it a while in our mind, we'd see lots of areas of application, you know, and just our everyday life. All of these are really powerful. Verse 3 is so true. The foolishness of man ruins his way. You know, what causes somebody to have a messed up life? They make stupid choices. But then who do they usually blame? <coughs> Others or here? God. Yeah. And his heart rages against the Lord. It's easier to blame God than to take personal responsibility for the consequences of our actions. And so a lot of times, instead of admitting it's our fault, we blame God for what we bring on ourselves. If you blame God, but it was really your fault, what's the problem with that? Besides the fact you're dishonoring God, what, what's the other problem? Not taking responsibility. And if you don't take responsibility, what will that lead to you not doing? You won't fix the problem, because it's not your problem. If you say, well, God did this, God is this, or whatever, or you blame somebody else, then you won't fix it because you're not admitting that you were the one in the wrong. That's one of the worst things about not accepting the responsibility for our mistakes. You can't improve if it wasn't your fault. We hate to say it was our fault, don't we? I don't know why this came to my mind, but uh, it's a good illustration of this. Um, my father-in-law who passed away many years ago, but he, uh, years ago, he was uh, at a stoplight in a line of cars waiting to make a right-hand turn. When the stoplight turned green, the cars began to advance and turn right. And so he was following the car in front of him, obviously, and he was making the right-hand turn, but the car in front of him stopped with him about halfway into the turn, so he stopped. The car behind him didn't stop and hit him. They get out of the car, he and the car behind him, the guy behind him who hit him was furious with him. 
He said, you were following too close in front of me. What? <laughs> uh, that's probably an extreme example. But for some people, it's always somebody else's fault, even if you were following too close in front of me. <laughs> Have you seen some people like that? So they're always blaming somebody else, even if it's that ridiculous. <laughs> That may be a new low in that, but, uh, <laughs> but some people are about like that. Are we ever like that? Yeah, right. Uh, in the, the show Happy Days, you know, there was uh, Fonzie, the, the, the super cool character. You know, everybody wanted to be like Fonzie. And, uh, there was one episode when he did something wrong, and, like, he would not admit it. And it finally came down to him, like, you know, them having to teach him how to say the words, I'm sorry. You know, I saw, oh, he couldn't say it. You know, that's kind of, we, we kind of, uh, you know, want to be like that. You know, we don't want to ever have to admit that we're wrong. Do you, do you have friends like that that never want to admit they're wrong? How do they end up looking sometimes? Really stupid, don't they? It's like everybody knows they're wrong. It's obvious they're wrong. When they won't admit it, it just makes them look even worse. You know, it's, it's much, somebody who says, I am sorry, that was my fault, I did wrong. Well, it's over. You know, they admitted it, you don't have to keep trying to get them to admit it. They took responsibility, it's much easier to deal with. They'll have their face rubbed in it a whole lot less if they'll, if they'll take responsibility for it. But when we never want to say I'm wrong, it's never my fault. <laughs> wow. How foolish that is. And even worse when it's God's fault. And I blame God. Other thoughts? In verse 4, we're back to friendship. What, what leads to lots of friends? Money. Money. Well, why does the rich man have lots of friends? What did you say? The baser. Yeah, they think they'll get something from him. So he, he accumulates friends. What kind of friends are they? <laughs> Probably not the kind of friends you're going to count on. But they're going to sure try to please him. They're always going to try to do what he wants. They're always, always going to try to tell him what he wants to hear. He's got a lot of admirers who are more friends of his pocketbook than they are of him. But a, a guy like that is going to have a hard time separating out the chaff from the wheat. You know, it's kind of a problem. There's lots of areas of this. Um, this is a little different uh, illustration, but it came to my mind, and I think it's, it's relevant. There was a, a man, uh, a fellow student in college with me, and uh, he really was frustrated. He, he was a, a really, I guess, I don't know, I, uh, this kind of thing, but, but he was a nice-looking guy to girls. And it really bothered him because he had a lot of girls liking him just because he was nice looking. And, and it was really like a problem for him. He was frustrated by it because it meant he had a lot of girls. It wasn't because of who he was, it was because he was just nice looking. And, you know, he ended up marrying a girl who I think was pretty independent and pretty strong-willed in and of herself. And I don't think she would have ever just liked the guy for her looks, for his looks. He, he, she was more, you know, determined in herself. Because he was just he was just so tired of girls just liking him because he was nice looking. Well, a, a rich man would get tired of the, the people just being a friend of his because he's got money and they want to get in on it. The poor man, though, doesn't have any friends. You know, he's deserted by everybody. Look at verse 7. All the brothers of a poor man hate him. How much more do his friends abandon him before Susan will do it when they're gone? You know, he can beg, and nobody's there for him. It really shows you how shallow friendships are. Look at verse 6. Many will seek the favor of a generous man. Every man's a friend of him who gives gifts. There's a lot of friendship that's not friendship. There's a lot of friendship that's just selfishness, disguise. I think I'll get something from you. Finding a true friend is tough. You'll probably only know if you've got a true friend if you're really poor and you can't give anything. But then you're going to have a hard time finding any friends 
And it just really makes you realize true friendship is a very rare thing. Think about Job. Did he really have friends? You know? It's hard to find a friend when you're down and out. And that meant the ones you had when you were rich weren't real friends. That's why they say the friends you make in college are the ones that stick around. Uh, I don't know. Because <laughs> you're down and out when you're in college? Yeah, financially, maybe so. Maybe so. But, you know, I bet if you're the guy with the, the wheels or, you know, other things like that in college, you probably could accumulate some friends a little more quickly. I don't know. Um, look, verse 5. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will not escape. He's going to say that again in verse 9, almost the same thing. God hates lying. He wants honesty. And so ultimately the false witness will be punished. Remember, bearing false witness was on the Ten Commandments. Well, that shall not bear false witness. Don't lie about somebody. Period. Comments or questions? Alright, let's take a brief break and then we'll come back and work on the rest of it. Let somebody read 8 to 12. He who gets wisdom loves his own soul. He who shares his understanding possibly. A false, false witness will not go unpunished. He who pours out life will perish. It's not fitting for a fool to live in luxury. How much worse for a slave to rule over princes? What roll up verse? 12. A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is his glory to overlook an offering. Him. A king's rage is like a roar of a lion, but his favor is like the dew of the grass. Alright, very good. Well, um, what do you need to do in verse 8? <coughs> Get, wisdom. Get wisdom. Isn't that what he's been saying this whole book? Wisdom is so valuable, but we don't just, just need to get it, like acquire it. What else do we need to do? Keep it. Keep it. You know, it requires as much attention to retain the wisdom as it does to, to obtain it in the first place. Sometimes people get wisdom and then they don't use it, they don't apply it, and they lose it. So our idea is to pursue it and to, to really keep seeking it and keep letting it benefit us. Wisdom is well worth the investment. Know the scriptures, apply them in your life. Verse 9, we've already looked at more or less in verse 5, but he says it again to emphasize again the importance of honesty. Honesty is critical. Always remember, Satan is the father of all lies. God is a God of truth. We better tell the truth. Verse 10, luxury is not fitting for a fool, much less for a slave to rule over princes. You know, what happens if you take a slave and suddenly you make him the ruler? Is that going to give him the qualities necessary to rule wisely? Probably not. What if you took the, the company janitor and you suddenly made him the CEO? Will that probably work well for the company? Maybe the janitor thinks so, but probably not. What if you take a common ordinary guy and he wins the lottery? Is he suddenly going to become smart enough to know what to do with the money? Probably not, and most of them end up broke fairly quickly. You know, just suddenly promoting somebody doesn't necessarily give them wisdom. In fact, sometimes if you take someone who doesn't have much confidence and you promote them, what does it lead to? How about pride? You know, suddenly they begin thinking, oh, look at who I am, and they fall flat on their face. So, it's wise to not try to put somebody in a position beyond what they can handle. Can you think of a guy in the Bible like that? I'm thinking of a particular man who was very much like this. He was not a very wise, competent person, but he ended up promoting himself into the position of leader. And it was a total disaster. He, he turned out to be just a wreck, and he wrecked everything around him, and all because he had sought to have power and glory for himself that he did not have the capability nor the wisdom to handle. That might describe several people in the Bible, might it? 
I'm thinking of a particular one. Who are you thinking of? Abimelech. Abimelech's who I was thinking of. Yeah. Abimelech, Judges chapter 9. Whoa. What a mess. And he definitely was not able to handle the power that he sought for himself. And it was a total disaster. <laughs> Comments or questions through verse 10? Verse 11 it is so much wiser to be slow to anger and to not hold a grudge. To, it, there are some people who see taking vengeance and retaliating as a badge of honor. Nobody messes with me. Somebody messes with me, I'll make them pay. You know, I'm a big bad dude. And sometimes people like that. They think that makes them really important. No. It's much more honorable to shrug off an insult. It's much better not to lose our temper, to, to control our anger, and to overlook a transgression, not to have to, to you know, respond to every slight and injustice we suffer. It takes a lot bigger man to do that than to try to take vengeance on everybody who mistreats us. That's a good proverb, one to think about. Because that's not the way our society rates those things. In society, the guy who takes vengeance is the real man. But that is not true. Uh, and 12, the king's wrath and the king's favor. The king's Wrath is like what? Lie and roaring. That's not going to be a good thing. But his favor is like what? <coughs> that gives life and refreshes and energizes. The point is the king has a lot of power. And so if you're smart, you're not going to provoke him. You're going to seek his favor. That's just a matter of wisdom. You know, some people are always trying to like rebel against authority. But most of the time, they just end up breaking their face. I mean, if the king's got the power and you try to rebel, what's going to happen to you? It's not going to work very well. All right, comments or questions through verse 12. So you, it's not going to say, because I've seen like the roaring of a lion, you know, kind of like a big noise, but doesn't do anything. But that's not the idea. I think the idea is this. Why does a lion roar? At least what I've been told. Anybody know uh, zoology? Yeah, to scare and knock them off balance. Yeah, to kind of like paralyze the prey. It, it's kind of, they kind of freeze and then the lion can pounce. So I think the roaring of the lion is the prelude to him having dinner. Good question. Other thoughts? Okay, uh, 13 to 18. A foolish son has destruction to his father, and the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. House and wealth are an inheritance from providence, but a prudent wife is from <coughs> Laziness casts into a deep sleep, and an idle man will suffer hunger. He who keeps the commandment keeps his soul, but he who is careless of conduct will die. One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. Discipline your son while there is hope, and do not desire his death. A man of great anger will hear the penalty, for if you rescue him, you will only have to do it again. Okay. Um, you know, there's several proverbs here on the family. Verse 13, think about two great sources of unhappiness in the home. A foolish son and a contentious wife. You know, maybe the man's closest male companion and his closest female companion. Think about how much damage a foolish son can do. Most of you guys aren't parents. But why? You have a son who just turns out badly, and it hurts so deeply. I've been close to a lot of people who've had that tragedy in their life, and I've seen how much it's wounded them. 
One of the things I thank God for every day, nearly every day, is having good children that God bless. <coughs> because I think about how much easier it is, how much more of a relief it is, how much more joy there is. You, most of you are, are still at home even, and even when you're out of home, this still applies. You know, you can bring either grief or joy to your parents by how you live, especially if you've got parents who are Christians who want you to do right. There's so much impact that that has. And then think about the contentious woman. What does he describe her like? Constant dripping. Now, what, what's the deal? A constant dripping. What's that saying? Annoying. Annoying, for one thing. Have you ever heard like just the drip, drip, <clears throat> drip of a faucet? You're trying to go to sleep. It's drip, drip, drip. How does how do you feel? <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah, it's just like set your teeth on edge. Like it's all you can ever think about. It's like you can't ignore it. Like it just gets louder. And and so for when one sense a wife was always um, nagging and complaining, it just gets really annoying. But maybe the idea also is, what would happen with a constant drip? It would eventually damage the house. You know, uh, the, the leak or whatever. So maybe it's also damaging besides being annoying. Um, what's the best way, what's the only way to deal with a contentious wife? At least from this analogy. Stop the dripping. Or leave the house. You know, I mean, it's just really difficult. Now, the lesson of that for young ladies might be, don't be a contentious wife, don't nag your husband. I don't care if he's a jerk, it's probably not gonna help him for you to harp on that. I mean, most men, if their wife just keeps bugging about, about something, will become even more stubborn. So that doesn't work. For a man, it, what if you're dating a girl that's always criticizing, that's always complaining? Wonder what she's going to be like as a wife. <laughs> you know, um, would you expect someone to improve their behavior after they got married, or to get worse? Why? Because now they've got the husband; they don't have to impress anybody. Exactly. You're on better behavior generally when you're still trying to acquire a mate than once you've got them. So you would imagine that it will get worse. It's amazing to me how sometimes we are so unwise in our choice of mates. It's like, what were you thinking? You already knew this, you already saw this. It was already hard for you when you just saw them once in a while when you were dating them. Do you think it's gonna get easier when you're living with them? You know, so think before you act. But certainly, those are two great sources of trouble in a home. <coughs> Thoughts and comments through 13? Look at 14. House and wealth are an inheritance from the fathers. You know, your, your, your parents may leave you an inheritance of a house or, or wealth, their, their estate, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. I mean, you can get house and wealth uh, from an inheritance, but the only place you'll get a good wife is from the Lord. It just shows you how valuable a wife is and how much we need the Lord's blessing in that. It's a great thing to pray about, to pray to have a wise and prudent wife. Uh, that's one of the things we need most from the Lord because there's little that will affect us more in our whole life, even spiritually. A good woman can make a lot of difference even to the eternal destiny of her husband. So can a bad man. You know, you want a, a prudent wife, and you need to think about the fact the Lord is the one who blesses you with that. You need his blessing. All right, thoughts or comments about that? I think 13 and 14 are good. And the flip side to maybe what Dan was saying about 1822, just in terms of finding good man. Here we have you know, kind of the word blessing. The, the man with one is opposed to looking for one. So it's like, you know, there's, it's active in both ways. Yes, we look, but we recognize we depend on the Lord to find. 
Yes. Good point. All right. Uh, in 15, what happens to the lazy man? He sleeps and starves. <laughs> you know, I mean, eventually you run out of food <laughs> if you're lazy. It, it's, Proverbs is always against laziness. Get up and get busy. Be diligent. Be active. Laziness is a downward cycle. The lazier you are, the lazier you become. You know, you just kind of lose all initiative and incentive. The only way to come out of that is to force yourself to do productive things and come up on an upward cycle where your productivity gives you more energy. And then in 16, he encourages us to keep God's commandments and not practice wicked, evil things. You know, do what's right and that will bless you in the long run. That's in general what Proverbs is teaching. And then in 17, what should we do? Be gracious to the poor. So why should we be gracious to the poor? He'll never be able to do anything for us. Good point. Will we get something back? Yeah. The Lord will repay us. The Lord will see to it that we're blessed. We are gracious because we want to be generous and help, but the Lord who has all funds will see to it that we get paid back. Then. I think you know, Jesus teaches that. You know, I think sometimes we're like, well, we need to give and lend to the poor also. And Jesus actually says, seek out those who lend, those who can't be back. Yeah, so those would be the people that we're looking for to get. You know, the people that we can't benefit from anyway. Yes. Serving those who won't be able to do anything back for us is exactly like Jesus. That's that's our goal. Logan. Would, would this also go to say that we shouldn't be so concerned about getting taken and be and be so ready to think that somebody's going to be guilty of cheating us and just help them anyway? Yes, but. Yes, I think so. I think we ought to be generous and not be worried that we're being stupid. There are a couple of principles on the other side of that that would balance it. One is, Proverbs says a lot about not co-signing loans. Don't obligate yourself financially to something that you can't pay because that's foolish and irresponsible. And don't facilitate someone's laziness. If a man does not work, neither let him eat. So you don't want to give if it actually hurts the person. There are, there are moments where to give will actually contribute to their bad character. But to, to not be so worried about us looking stupid or being taken, I agree. We need to be generous and not worry so much about that. Just another, I mean, you covered it in saying sometimes you can get even when there's a bad character. So there, there are some people who don't use the funds in order to benefit from those, um, and they support their habits using those funds. Um, and you see, uh, just day to day downtown, it's everywhere. So, I mean, that's just an example. Yeah, we, we seek to bless people. And sometimes the blessing is not given. But if we're not giving just because we're stingy and selfish and we're using that as an excuse, that's not good. But what we want to do is bless people, and so we try to give them the best gifts. Other thoughts? <coughs> All right. And then in uh, 18, this is good. Discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. When should child discipline begin? Mm, not exactly. Give <laughs> <laughs> a whack or two on their way out of the womb. Not exactly, but very early. Uh, some of you have been parents, not many. Uh, for us, you know, you think about what's the purpose of discipline? Teach. 
to teach and train. What are you trying to teach? Behaviors. <coughs> what do you mean by behavior? For? Yes, respect for authority. And, you know, um, you're not necessarily trying to teach what you don't do and what you do. You're trying to teach you obey. So, with our children, you know, when they're a month old, there's really not anything to discipline for. They cry when they're hungry, they cry when they need their diaper changed, they cry when they're tired. They're not doing something wrong, they're not defying your authority. But our kids got to about six, seven, eight months and started crawling like good. And I think with both of them, the first discipline came when they uh, found this little gadget as they were crawling and decided to stick their finger there. And so what I would do is to pull back their finger and say, no, don't touch that. Well, of course, as any self-respecting child, that's the first thing they did again. And I'd say, you are not supposed to touch that. Don't touch that. If you touch that again, I will spike your finger. And I knew that they understood me when they did like that. <laughs> and I would take the hand, I would slap the finger, and I would explain, they cry, and I'd explain to them again, you have to obey me. You have to do what I said. And I would try to help them to understand. I would reassure them of my love. And that began the discipline process. If you wait till the kid's five or 10, and then you start disciplining him, there's almost no hope left. That's way too late. You take advantage of the time when the child is moldable. Now, discipline is not what some people think it is. There are some people who discipline this way. Ah, this kid's annoying me. Whack. Well, discipline has nothing to do with me being annoyed. It's not a response to my emotions. It's not, I'm tired today. You know, it's, you need to obey my authority. And when you don't, I discipline you so that you'll learn to respect my authority. You do that when they're young and moldable, but you're doing it for their benefit. You're doing it for the, the son while there's hope for him. You're not desiring his death. When parents discipline because of themselves, it doesn't help. You discipline for the benefit of the child, trying to help mold and shape them to respect authority. If you wait, your crucial training moments have already passed. Comments and questions. Errol and I were watching some kids uh, last week and uh, uh, I don't know, the, the youngest might have been maybe eight months old, and he was calling over to like, grab his dad's guitar, and I told him no, and you know, he turned around and looked at me and cried a little bit, and then crawled off to somewhere else. I mean, it's, I didn't expect that to work. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well like, trained child. You know, they can understand at that age. Yes, very much so. <clears throat> Certainly, uh, that's another error parents make, I think. Your discipline is not just spanking. You are training them verbally to a great extent. And I think a lot of times parents think that your kid has to be five or 10 before you can actually start teaching them even in what you say. Children know a whole lot very early on. And you'll tell that they can't speak back, but you'll see like that they knew exactly what you were saying. So you're teaching them very, very, very honest, very, very as babies, you start talking to them. You start shaping them and molding them and guiding them. The physical discipline is part of that, but it's, it's a whole package. I'll tell you something else you've got to think about with that. Did you ever notice what parents have a terrible habit of doing? Talking about their children and putting their children to someone else. Assuming that this five-year-old kid has no idea what they're saying about him. 
you know, my kid is really bad, they do this and this and this and this, and this kid is listening. What do you think that does for a child? <coughs> it's not good. You know, it kind of like gives them, well, this is who my parents say I am, so that must be who I am. Even a, you know, child who's a year old is probably going to understand a lot of what his parents are saying about him in front of somebody else. He may not be able to speak back, or he may not choose to speak back. The five-year-old probably won't say anything, but he got it. Be careful about that. Other thoughts? And 19 is a man of great anger will bear the penalty, for if you rescue him, you'll only have to do it again. Don't bail out an angry man. Why is that? Just going to repeat his mistakes. Why? Why would an angry man do that? Don't That's exactly right. The guy who loses his temper doesn't do it as a settled purpose. He just does it as a response to his impulse. And so even if he says, oh, I won't do it anymore, he'll do it again, because he wasn't doing it before because he decided to, like a logical, thought-out process, he just gave in to how he felt. You take a guy who loses his temper, bail him out, he'll go right back there again. He may say he won't, but he will because he's not governing his feelings. One of the things we've got to learn most in Proverbs is not to act by feeling, but by principle. You know, what do most people do? I'm mad, I'll hit something. I'm mad, I'll yell. Or whatever. So, my emotion means I do this. We've got to cut that. My emotions must be controlled by the principles of wisdom to where I don't just automatically react to my emotion. I consider what God would want me to do, and that's how I act. The man of great anger, <laughs> he's hopeless. Because he always acts that way, you bail him out, it'll just be more trouble later on. Comments and thoughts? I think there's a principle here um, just that, that we can take from, like, you can't expect someone to change if they have no reason to change. Um, and with, any, with anything, anger or any other bad habit that someone may have, you, can't, you, might, you have to give them a reason to change and be a different person in order to expect that. So bailing them out isn't going to be helpful um, unless you give them a reason. Uh, 20 years ago, there was a young man who was dating a girl in a congregation I was part of. And uh, he obeyed the gospel. He was a very strong Christian, a very good man. But uh, his story was that he was pretty wild, fairly wild as a teenager. And uh, he uh, he ended up getting picked up with DUIs a time or two, and his dad bailed him out. He turned 18, he got another DUI, called his dad from jail, and his dad said, I'm not bailing you out. Infuriated the boy at first, but it changed him. He never did that again. And he really turned to the Lord and saw him. It was probably a real blessing that his dad had enough wisdom to say, you got to listen. He spent a couple nights or two or three, I think, in jail, and he didn't like that. There are times when getting burned is the best way to learn. And if somebody always just it, takes away the consequences, you never learn. Good point. Other thoughts? Okay, uh, would somebody read 20 to uh, 23? Listen to counsel and receive instruction, and you may be wise in the latter days. There are many plans in a man's heart, nevertheless the Lord's counsel that will stand. What is desired in a man is kindness, and a poor man is better than a liar. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction. He will not be visited with evil. Yeah, thank you. Um, in 20... We're back to the key verse of the book almost. 
I don't know if there's anything that more typifies Proverbs than this verse. What do we need to do? Listen. Listen to counsel. Be willing to accept advice. Be teachable. That is the mark of wisdom. Wise people are wise because they're willing to listen. And they don't think they know everything. So that's a key principle. Listen to counsel. Verse 21, here's a man who plans things. But what about a man's plans? If it doesn't go along with God's will, it's not going to happen. Exactly. God has veto power. You know, he can trump what a man decides. He overrules. And he can accomplish his purpose regardless of what the man plans. We think, oh, I've decided I'm going to do this and this and this and everything's going to work out this way. You ever planned something that didn't turn out quite that way? You know, we all have. We realize we're not the only one involved. Think about people in the Bible who planned things and God overruled those plans. Can you think of some? Jonah. Jonah. What was he going to do? Uh, well, he obviously tried to run away from God, but I was thinking also when he was playing on Nineveh being destroyed. Yes. He tried to, uh, everything. You know, he kept having independent plans, and they didn't work out too well. Who else in the Bible? David. David. A couple David? times. A couple times uh, he, uh, um, like, trying to get the uh, Ark of the Covenant, then also the Temple. Okay, yes. So his plans didn't turn out to be God's. What about men whose plans were really reversed by God? Haman. Haman! That's a great example. What did he plan? Yeah, and hang Mordecai. Well, was there a hanging on the gallows he built? Who was the victim? Haman himself kind of backfired on him. God had a little bit to say about that. So, the lesson is, it doesn't just depend on my plans. It depends on what God determines. Sometimes my plans may come right back on top of my own head. Thoughts? 22, it's better to do without money than to do without character. Isn't that what that's saying? You be honest and righteous, that's so much better than riches. And then in 23, the fear of the Lord leads to life, so that one may sleep satisfied and touched by evil. He's talked so much in this book about the fear of the Lord, but here the fear of the Lord calms you. The fear of the Lord gives you peace and helps you be able to sleep. That's the only thing that will. If you don't have the Lord with you, things are so insecure. Things are so unsettled. You never know what's going to happen. When you have the Lord with you and you respect Him, you can lay down and sleep. Because God will take care of things. It's so much better to have God on our side. Comments? Alright, 24 to 29. <laughs> Sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but will not even bring it back to his mouth. Strike a scoffer, and the naive may become shrewd, but reprove one who has understanding, and he will gain wisdom, or gain knowledge. He who assaults his father and drives him under away is a shameful and disgraceful son. Cease listening, my son, to discipline, and you will strike from the word of knowledge. A rascally witness makes a mockery of justice, and the mouth of the wicked spreads iniquity. Judgments are prepared for scoffers, and blows for the for the back. I love verse twenty-four. <laughs> what about the lazy man here? He feeds yeah. Well, yeah. What what happens to it? Food doesn't. Yeah, you know, he's able to get his hand down in the bowl. You know, the force of gravity helps him with that. But to bring it back up to his mouth is just too much work. <laughs> That's kind of pathetic, don't you think? 
Yeah, you ever go to anybody that lazy? <laughs> Too lazy to feed himself? That's so pathetic. But sometimes people are almost that bad. You know, they, how many of us will start something, but we never have the diligence to finish it? You know, that's kind of what you're dealing with here. Just somebody who, they, they're too self-indulgent. They don't never really have the follow-through to carry out what they need to do. And it's pathetic. You, if you're too lazy to feed yourself, you are too lazy. <laughs> Thoughts about that or comments? Proverbs likes to poke, poke fun at the lazy man. Strike a scoffer. Well, think about that. A scoffer is a rebel. He's a mocker. He, he thinks he knows everything. So if you, if you strike a scoffer, you, you punish a scoffer, what's that going to do for him? He doesn't say it here, but what's it, what's it going to do to punish a scoffer for the scoffer? <laughs> Nothing. He's too stubborn to listen. What will striking a scoffer do? Teach other people. It'll teach the other person, the naive person, who needs to learn from that. There is a value in punishing wicked people even if the wicked people don't change. It teaches a good lesson to other people who are more teachable. You know, sometimes we might think of, uh, you know, punishing a criminal and think, well, punishing him won't rehabilitate him. Well, maybe it won't, but it may help somebody else not do the same thing. You know, that's also a value. So there's, we need to have justice, execute justice, for even the naive to learn from that. We learn from punishments in the Bible. <laughs> punishments of people who it didn't help them, but we've been benefited by that. If you reprove one who has understanding, he'll learn from that. You know, so you correct a wise man, and he'll learn. Are we a wise man? Do we learn from correction? Or do we just become defensive when somebody tries to point out what we're doing wrong? Or do we maybe even lie about it? and not admit that we've got the problem. It's a lot to think about there, and so typical of Proverbs. Thoughts on 25? In 26, he's told us to listen to parents who teach the way of truth, but even worse than not listening is the guy who assaults his father and mother. That's a shameful, disgraceful thing. It's despicable to abuse parents. And then in 27... What if we quit listening to wisdom? Then we'll stray away from the words of knowledge. You know anybody who quit listening to wisdom and strayed away from the words of knowledge in the Bible? Rather ironically, Rehoboam, but even closer to home, Solomon himself. Isn't that ironic? Solomon writes this proverb and then doesn't listen to it. He's so true in what he said, but even Solomon himself strayed away from the words of knowledge and hurt his life seriously. You know, it doesn't make any difference how wise you are. Even Solomon, if you quit listening and you quit relying on what the Lord says, it'll be a disaster in your life. We're never too wise to keep listening and keep diligently following the principles of wisdom. Thoughts and comments about that? 28, he talks about the rascally wit witness. This would be the man who doesn't tell the truth on the witness stand. What's that going to do to the criminal justice system? Going to mess things up. A lying witness can cause injustice to be done in the courtroom. That's a terrible thing. God speaks a lot about that. He wants honesty in the courtroom. And then 29, what are judgments for? What are blows for? They're for the fool. There's a natural fit between the punishment and the fool. It's just what he deserves. It's just what he's asking for. A fool ought to be punished. That's what's right for him. Comments and questions?
Amen. Good reason not to be a fool, don't you think? <coughs> and I think this section really perhaps is best to close at 20 verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler. And whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. To me that fits well with what we've just been looking at. Various kinds of fools. Well, here's another kind of a fool, the fool who gets drunk. Why is it so bad to get drunk? Yeah, exactly. We don't make wise decisions. We don't act wisely. You know, uh, that's, that's another brand of fool. You know, if you start looking at this, we've been looking at the, the lazy fool, uh, we've been looking at the violent fool. We've been looking at the proud fool and the and the dishonest fool. And here's the drunken fool. You know, there's lots of ways of being a fool. And certainly, a, a, somebody who, who gets drunk, well, it's going to do dumb things. Going to mess their life up. Start uh, fights. Do what? Start fights. Start fights. And maybe you know, get in a car and kill somebody. There's lots of things that happen. Comments and questions about that? This is a really, uh, um, maybe something we don't think about a whole lot. I, I mean, I, I've never had um, experiences with people who were drunk before, but recently in the dorm where we're staying at college, there was a, a young lady who got drunk one night and we had to deal with her. Um, and she ended up being strapped down to a gurney and taken out after trying to take her own life. So I mean, I think that was just a really practical example for me at the time to see Know, really what it does to people and how it affects other people as well because everyone in the, the complex who watched it happen we didn't really know what to do at the time so it, it, it leads us to do foolish things and, and you know it kind of goes back to we're talking about some of the past uh, verses in 29 um, and 25 you know we see the consequences of the actions that others take and we can learn from them as well I mean it's sort of something that I'm going to be more aware of and, and not something that I'm ever going to touch it. Well, you know, sometimes we think that God is just trying to take away all our fun. You know, he just wants to be mean to us and, you know, not let us do the things we want to. But when you look at things like that, you realize God's teaching us the wisdom we need to live a much better life. It's not that God's trying to mess us up. He's trying to help us and keep us from messing ourselves up. And you can certainly see that in passages like this. And really that's true with all of what the Bible says. God made us. He knows what's best for us. And when we don't follow his principles, we will uh, hurt ourselves. Other thoughts? <coughs> Alright, would somebody read verses 1 through 5? Or 2 through 5, rather. Chapter 20. The terror of the king is like the brown of the lion. He who provokes 